my wife and I, along with the two other friends, visited this memorial this past fall, and it was overwhelming. That room in particular was was just overwhelming to the point that we left at one point. I couldn't stand there, and uh, I never went back to those screens. Looked at one individual and read his story, and that was about all that I could take. But after some time of stepping out, I decided to go back in, wanting to engage somehow with with these folks these individuals who had had perished in these attacks, to some extent out of respect, but also to remember uh, what was lost that day. I think we all know where we were uh, during those attacks, but it was something about entering into people who were affected in a much deeper way than even just I was, understanding and having fear in that moment. And it was good. It was good to enter into that place and to feel that grief to a certain extent. And in some ways, I think that's what we're called to do here as we go to the Garden of Gethsemane. That in some ways, this isn't necessarily my pain to enter into, but it is my pain because it's Christ's suffering on behalf of me. I think the agony in the Garden is something that's probably very familiar to us. We know about Jesus praying in Gethsemane. We know what happened, that it, it, was, it was a true event. And yet, <clears throat> I think we forget sometimes what Christ was wrestling with there in the garden. I imagine if we, if we had been there, if we had been, say, Peter or James or John, so close, so near to him, that it would have been very uncomfortable. It would have not been a scene that you really wanted to be there for. To hear Jesus crying out with loud cries and anguish, to hear him weeping because of what he was about to face, that's not something that any of us would necessarily want to be a part of. And even now, as we sort of paint that picture, it can become uncomfortable in our minds, in part because of all that emotion, and we just sometimes don't know how to deal with that, but also to understand what is happening here as Jesus, the Son of God and the Son of Man, is wrestling with the will of the Father almost and wondering, can this cup be taken from him? And in seeing him, we we learn and we wrestle with that. We get a picture of what it took for us to be saved, for what it took to, for Christ to accomplish our salvation. But then, as we have been learning, we also see how we can pray in the midst of our own lives when we feel overwhelmed. Because we're not just entering into the suffering of Jesus as we look at him in the garden, but we are also watching Jesus enter into our suffering. He is suffering because he is taking our sins upon himself. We see him feeling the feeling of of our weakness. And as he prays, he shows us how to pray when we feel like we are being overwhelmed by darkness and difficulty. And so often we don't know where to turn. And here we are shown in some way how to approach God as we watch Christ coming to the Father, even on our behalf, feeling the full weight of our sin on his shoulders. So we've been talking about these lessons of a prayer from Gethsemane. And two weeks ago, we, we sort of looked about preparing for prayer. And then last week, we were talking about uh, the words that we pray. Uh, what are the, the words that we pray when we are at a complete loss for words? And we're going to kind of continue that um, this morning, consider that again. So that is, again, our, our main idea. Uh, Jesus gives us the words to pray when we are at a loss for words. Last week, we said that we come to him as Father, as, as Abba. Um, that prayer is rooted in relationship, um, and the relationship that we have with God is as a loving Father who, who wants to hear from us. And then tied to that, 
um, he's a father who we can pour out our hearts to. And so we said that we, we express our emotions freely to God. Um, that when we use words, we tell God exactly how we feel. We tell him the depths of our struggles. We tell him uh, the pain that we have. We are honest with him. We wear our emotions on our sleeve, even as Jesus does here. So when we think about the words that we pray when we're at a loss for words, we begin by approaching God as Father, and we pour out our hearts to Him because of the relationship that we have with Him, because of the love that He has for us. And so picking up from there, I want to think about four more things that relate to the words that we use um, in in the darkness when we are seeking to pray. Um, but let's look at this scene again in Mark 14, and I'll read verses 32 through 42. We will focus on verse 36 this morning, which is the bulk of Jesus' prayer. Beginning in verse 32, we read, And they, this is the disciples minus Judas, went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Going a little farther, he fell down on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. Regarding the words that we say when we're caught by our weakness, by our inability to even express the feelings that are sort of flooding into our hearts, we come to God as Father, we express our emotions freely, and then sort of the, the first point today, but maybe the third point as we think about these words, is we acknowledge God's power and ability. We acknowledge God's power and ability. You can see that in these words there in verse 36. He said to him, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. All things are possible for you. As we were talking about speaking out loud, we hinted last week that this act of expressing our hearts in words accomplishes something in and of itself. When we speak out loud and we say what we're feeling, it does something. We know this in, in relationships. That's why we call people and talk to them when we're in trouble, because we feel like we need to, I need to talk to someone. I need to talk this out, as it were. And the talking through what's happening in our lives and in our hearts and in our Mind in some way helps us process exactly what is what is going on. And there's some of that that's happening in prayer. But also in coming to God in prayer, we're not simply coming to Him because He is a, a sympathetic ear. We've said that, that He is that. He, he cares for us deeply. Jesus has suffered as we have. But when we come to God in prayer, we're coming for, for something a little bit more than that, aren't we? We come to Him also because we want Him to do something about our pain. We're coming to him, asking him to deal with the situation, to deal with the darkness, to deal with the, the suffering that we are facing. And we are coming to him in particular 
because we acknowledge that he is powerful and he is able to do something. Saying that he is um, all-powerful is not just an intellectual act. It's not a, a bare statement of the fact that God is omnipotent. It's not a, a proposition in some theology textbook. This is a statement of, of faith. Jesus comes to the Father in this moment because he knows that all things are possible for him. He knows that that there is nothing outside of God's ability to perform. Of course, barring sinning or going against his own will. There's nothing that he can, that God cannot do. And so Jesus comes to the Father, he comes to God with faith. Faith that is rooted in the fact that God certainly does care for him, but also in the fact that, that God is able to help him. All things are possible for you, Father. You can do anything. Sometimes there are people in your life who care about the struggles that you have, but they are powerless to do anything about it. And sometimes you have people in your life who are powerful and able to do something about the struggle that you're in, but they don't care a lick about you. Um, I have a friend, and he and his wife have been pursuing the adoption of two brothers for about two years now, and things keep getting hung up in court proceedings and, and government regulations and things like that. And I've journeyed part of the way with him, and I, I care about his situation. But I am powerless to do anything other than pray. Of course, that's where my illustration breaks down, because prayer, of course, is the greatest thing I can do, because I'm coming to the one who can do all things. But forget that for a moment, at least, in this illustration. So I care, but I'm powerless. And he knows the system well enough to say, this is the guy that's making the decision. This is the guy that needs to do something. But that guy doesn't care about my friend at all. He doesn't even know his name, probably. So I care deeply for my friend, but I'm totally powerless to do anything. And here's a guy who has all the power to deal with the situation, but he doesn't care for my friend. And so what do we do? Well, the point here is that when we come to the Father, we come to the Father not only because he cares. He doesn't just care and say, well, I feel really bad. I wish there was something I could do. And he doesn't say... I can do anything, but I don't really care about you at all. But he is both of those things together. That the Father cares deeply for us, and he is able and powerful to do something about it. Therefore, to, to say that all things are possible is a statement of faith. It's a belief that God can do all things. Interestingly, when we confess God's strength, God is all-powerful and can do all things, we are also admitting our own weakness. We are acknowledging that we can't do anything to deal with the situation that we are in. So we say, God, all things are possible for you. And when we say that, we are, in a sense, simultaneously saying, and apart from you, I can do nothing. I am helpless in this situation. It's something that I cannot handle. I'm overwhelmed. I am in need. And that is why we are coming to the Father in, in prayer. So we pray in desperate times, and, and as we're praying in darkness, and as we're praying in, in difficulty, we need to remind ourselves of God's power. And in prayer, in some sense, we're reminding God of God's power. Not that he's forgotten it, but again, this process of praying, we, we, we are telling him, God, you are able to do all things. I believe that. And not only that, but throughout Scripture, it's interesting, it's not just this, it's not all things are possible for you. But throughout Scripture, when you read the prayers, they're always recalling the things that God has done. They're saying, God, all things are possible for you. We remember the Exodus. We remember when we were slaves in Egypt, and you delivered us. Now do it again, Lord. And there's this sense in which 
they, they go to the history and they say, God, we know you are powerful because we believe this happened. Now, in our present, would you do that again? And that's what we do in prayer. As we come to God, we say, God, you are all powerful. And we look back at scripture and we see where God is powerful. And we say, we see these acts, these mighty acts of God. And we believe that you can do that again. And we even go into our own lives and we say, God, I remember when you did this for me. I remember when you heard this prayer. I remember when you listened to my prayer on this particular thing and you showed yourself powerful. Lord, do it again. And that prayer is that wrestling. And it's almost emboldening that faith. Lord, I believe you can do all things. Here's all the evidence. I believe you can do it. Would you do it again? And so that's actually, we're kind of moving into the next one. We, When we pray, we acknowledge God's, God's power and His ability. But then second, we ask boldly for our heart's desires. We ask boldly for our heart's desires. We ask that God would do what we want. So Jesus says, if you look in verse 36, all things are possible for you. And then He brings this profound request to the Father. Remove this cup from me. He expresses faith in God's power, his ability to do all things. And in light of that, he asks that the cup that is being placed before him be taken away from him. What's the cup? That's that's the next right question to ask. Very simply, we gather from the Old Testament and we gather from our understanding of what Christ's death means, the substitutionary death of Jesus, that this is the cup of the wrath of God against the sin of the world that it is the judgment of God against the sin and rebellion of all of us as his creatures. In general, Scripture will talk about a cup, and it's a cup of suffering in general. Um, so when James and John send their mom to ask Jesus if, he, if they can sit on his right and left hand, if you remember that scene, which is somewhat comical, um, Jesus says, you can sit at my right and left hand if you're willing to drink the cup that I'm going to drink. And James and John naively say, we can do that. We can drink that cup along with you. And Jesus says, you will drink the cup, but to sit at the right and the left hand is not for me to give. Now there's a sense in which they will drink the same cup. They will drink the cup of of suffering uh, with Christ. But it's different. It's different for all of us. We will all face suffering. We will all drink that cup to some extent if we are followers of Jesus. But James and John don't drink the same cup that Jesus is about to drink because no one will drink that cup other than Christ in this moment. We don't suffer under the wrath of God if we are followers of Jesus because Jesus in his suffering drinks every last drop of God's wrath for our sin. Jesus becomes our sin bearer and thereby he becomes the bearer of the wrath of God in our place as his adopted children through faith, the cup of suffering that we drink in this life, the suffering that we face, it has no drop of God's wrath in it, because Jesus drank all of that for us. We will suffer, but none of us suffer like Christ did here. There's more that we could say about that. Maybe we'll discuss that a little bit more tonight. But I think understanding what this cup is in general makes this request more profound And also a little bit troubling, doesn't it? What is Jesus asking for? Jesus is asking that the Father would take away this cup. But Jesus' drinking of the cup is what accomplishes salvation for us. 
Jesus taking the wrath of God on himself means that I don't have the wrath of God. And in the garden, it seems like Jesus is saying, I don't want to drink that cup. What is he expressing there? I don't think he's expressing a lack of desire to save us as his, as the children of God. But I think what's happening here is that seeing the pain and the anguish that's coming to him on the cross and that he's already facing in some measure now, he says, God, is there some other way for us to do this? Is there some other way that salvation can be accomplished? And if so, he wants the Father to take this cup away because of the pain that's going to go. Now, let's go a little deep. This is where my mind goes. My mind then says, was it possible? Was it possible for the Father to take that cup away? Was it possible for him to accomplish salvation without Jesus drinking the cup of the wrath of God? Was there some other way? I remember listening to uh, Andy Gullihorn's CD when it came out. And he has this lyric in one of his songs. He says, there are other ways that Jesus could have saved the world. Ones that wouldn't end up with him dead. He could have done it with an order from the throne of God. But he did it with a broken heart instead. I love that. It's very profound. Is it true? <laughs> Was there another way? Were there other ways that God could accomplish salvation? I, I want to say yes, because Jesus asks for it. There's a sense in which he is saying, there's got to be another way. Father, can you take away this cup and we'll do it a different way? So part of me says that because Jesus is asking, it has to be a legitimate question and a, a legitimate possibility. And if, if it's true that there are other ways, then what a glorification of the love of God that this is the way that he chooses, that he chooses to, to show salvation through the death and the resurrection of his son, through giving up his son as a display of the ugliness of sin and the beauty of his grace. But I also wonder, was there actually really no other way? There was no other way except for the sacrifice of the Son. That this is the only way that the Father can be true to his character. It's the only way he can remain holy and just and righteous, but also show mercy and grace to those of us who are sinners. And if that's true, then the willingness of God to take on this task, and instead of just saying, forget it, it's too hard, that shows his mercy and glorifies him as well. Let me say this, whether there was another way for God to accomplish salvation than through the death of the Son, I want to be clear on this. There is no other way of salvation now except through faith and repentance towards Christ. There is no other way. Jesus says he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. When he drank the cup of God's wrath, he made salvation possible. He proclaimed in that moment salvation is possible through no other name other than the name of Jesus. So was it possible for the Father to remove the cup? I don't know. I, I don't know. And in some way, I'm, I'm totally fine with that. In fact, I think the mystery of that seems to drive home the thought that we can, we can come to God and boldly ask for our heart's desires in prayer, even if we don't know if that's possible. There are some things that are not possible, that are against the will of God. There's things that we don't pray for, because we know that God is opposed to that. It's very clear that it is against him and his character to do certain things. But in the things that we are unsure about, how would God act? How does he desire to act? What is his will in this circumstance? 
we can come boldly to him and we can make a request. There's almost a sense in which we can come to God with large requests knowing that it doesn't hurt to ask. And the worst that he can say is no. As long as we are, our hearts are pure before God, we're asking according to his will, as best that we know how, we can ask big things. That's how kids ask for stuff, isn't it? They make bold requests because, you know, well, you never know. Maybe he'll say yes. And I think there's a sense of that here. That Jesus is making a bold request that's flowing out of his heart. What have we missed in our lives because we've not asked? As the song says, what peace have we forfeited? What, what pain have we borne because we didn't make our requests known to God? Sometimes we doubt his power. We think that he can't do something and so we neglect to ask him. Or we doubt his care and so we don't come to him because we think, oh, he's not concerned about this. But I think Jesus shows us, come boldly. Ask ask anything that you will of the Father. There's a sense in which if we're pouring out our hearts before God, those kind of bold requests can't be kept down. We make bold requests. We're unconcerned about the ins and the outs of those requests because we're just crying out in, in darkness and in anguish and in pain. And we, we pray to God and God shows us mercy and grace even within that. So with Jesus, whether it's possible or not, Jesus, I believe, truly desires for the cup to be taken away from him. This is not just a, a statement. He truly does not want to drink this cup because of the pain. As we consider the person of Jesus and the reality of his humanity, for him to look at the cross, not simply the physical suffering, but also the spiritual weight of taking on the wrath of God upon himself, for him to not pray this prayer would almost be to deny his humanity. If he knows that's what he's facing and he doesn't say, Lord, could you take this from me? It's almost as if he doesn't understand what's happening. You look at martyrs, though, and we say, well, martyrs face death, and they didn't look like Jesus here. They're stoic, and they're brave, and they come to death without any fear. Why is Jesus cowering in the garden, as it were? I think because no one has ever died a death like Jesus. No one has ever faced the wrath of God for the sins of the world like Jesus was about to it's unlike anything that anyone has ever faced, and unlike anything that anyone ever will face. Even those who suffer punishment for their sin for all eternity are suffering punishment for their sin. Jesus is suffering punishment for the sins of the world. So did he want this to be taken away from him? Yes, he did. And doesn't that show the love of God for us? how daunting this task was. And it shows us that like Jesus, we can come to the Father and we can ask for our heart's desires. We can look at a situation and apart from asking for sinful desires, we ask God to do the thing that we most desire. They flow from this belief that God cares for us deeply, that He is all-powerful. He is able to give us what we ask. We know that He cares. We know that He can. The question then becomes... Is he willing? You might remember the leper in Luke 5. He comes to Jesus and he asks for Jesus to make him clean. And he says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. He doesn't doubt for one second that God is able to do it. But his question is, will you? Are you willing? Is that your desire, Jesus? And we come to God in prayer in part because we don't fully know what his will is. 
We know certain things, but we don't know it always in a certain, in particular circumstances. There are a number of ways of ways that things could go and, and still be glorifying and honoring to God. And so we, we come to him knowing he cares and we know that he is powerful. We ask for our heart's desires, but even in that, asking for our heart's desire, there is a deeper desire still for the child of God. And that's what we see here in the, the third thought as we think about words is that we submit to God's will. We submit to God's will. So we said we come to His Father, we express our emotions clearly, we acknowledge that all things are possible for Him, we ask for our heart's desires, and then we submit to God's will. You see that here after He says, Remove this cup from me, then this famous words, Yet not what I will, but what you will. Having asked for his desire, he says that his greater desire, above everything else, is the will of the Father. He asks for the cup to pass, but even more than he wants the cup to pass, even more than that, he wants what the Father wants. He wants to do what God asks him to do. And we know what the will of the Father is, don't we? The will of the Father is to not let the cup pass, but for Jesus to drink it all. The Father does not answer the request of Jesus for the cup to pass with the answer, yes, I will let it pass for you. And so it seems in some ways on the surface that there's a division, that this is what Jesus wants. Jesus wants the cup to pass, and the Father wants Jesus to drink it. And it's as if the, the desire of Jesus and the desire of the Father are in conflict, it feels like. And yet, doesn't it feel as almost as if there's a conflict within Jesus himself? That he desires the cup to pass, but he also says, but I want to do the will of the Father. Uh, there's a hint of that here, but I think it's interesting in John 12. So this is even before Jesus is in the garden. It's in the moment in John 12 where Jesus finally says the hour has come. There's been suspense up to that point where Jesus keeps saying, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come. And then in the moment he says, my hour has come, the hour that he is going to die, that he's going to be crucified. He knows it's coming. And just before that, he says in John 12, 27 and 28, he says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. This request here in, in John 12, Father, save me from this hour, it's, it's almost the exact same request as let this cup pass. And here, in John, he seems to be saying, I shouldn't even ask the Father for that. I'm not going to ask the Father for that because that's why I'm here. That's why I've come into the world. And yet, in the garden, some hours later, he does ask for that. What's going on here? I don't think that verse 12 reveals that Jesus didn't truly desire for the cup to pass, but rather I think that underneath this desire to be free from all the pain, spiritual, physical, emotional, that Jesus is going to, pay, to face, he always desires the will of the Father above everything else. Did he want the cup to pass? Yes, he surely did. But did he want to glorify the Father through the salvation of his children? Yes, even more so. And if his desire for the cup to pass and his desire for the glory of the Father, if those were somehow in conflict, 
that his greater desire was for the glory of God, even if it meant his own suffering. The Father and the Son are not divided in this. Their wills are not in opposition to each other. I don't think the Father, in some sense, wants his Son, desires his Son to go through this, just as Jesus doesn't desire to go through it. And yet they do both desire for him to go through it. One way to think about this that theologians try to use is that there are this idea of two wills in God. That there is what some would call the will of desire, and some would call the will of, and the other would be the will of decree. That there are things that God wants. God is not willing that anyone should perish, but that everyone would come to repentance. God does not delight in the death of the wicked. That's not something that he wants. But those things happen. The, the wicked do die, and people die without coming to repentance. Does that change the fact that God wants that? No. But the reality of his will is that that's what happens. And I think there's a sense of that happening here. That he desires for the cup to pass. None of them necessarily want this to happen, but their greater love for the glory of God and even for sinners is that they will let this happen even though it's going to cause so much pain. The way it's described here is that Jesus submits to the will of the Father. But I don't want you to think that Jesus goes to the cross begrudgingly. He doesn't obey his Father and his actions uh, but not go with his heart. We've all done this from a young age. I don't want to, but I'll do it because I'm supposed to. That's not how Jesus is going to the cross. No one took his life from him. He willingly laid it down. And there's not a division in his purpose, in his person. Don't think that his human nature wants to run, but his divine nature stays, and that's how it's happening. No, Jesus willfully chooses to go to the cross with every part of him, both his human will and his divine will. He knows what is coming, and he walks into the darkness in submission to the Father for his glory. In this moment, he loves God with all his heart, all his soul, all his mind, and all his strength, more than anyone ever has. And not only that, but he fulfills the law in that he loves his neighbor as himself. His desire is for the glory of God, for God's will to happen, but also he does it out of love for God's children. We read John 3.16 in our reading. God so loved the world that he sent his only son. And Jesus, in love, goes to the garden and goes all the way to the cross. For the glory of the Father, yes, but also for us. He faces this out of love for us. As we think about how this applies even to our own hearts as we pray, we too find that sometimes submitting to the Father and trusting His will may lead to our own suffering. It may result in deep pain and darkness as we, as we put the Father's will above our own will. We might lose someone that we love, whether because of death or because of a broken relationship. We might have to deny ourselves something good that we want, that's a right desire, but we can't have because it's not part of God's plan in this moment. We might be forced to walk down a path of pain, and difficulty, maybe physical, maybe emotional, a path that we never expected because that's what is most for the glory of God. And if our desire is God's glory, then we will pray like Jesus. We will tell God what we desire, but we will also say, but we want I want your will more than I want even my own. Not my will, but, but yours be done. It may be that loving our neighbor causes us to lay down our rights, that we take on pain for the good of others. We deny our desires and our 
personal ambitions to bless another. We we wrestle with these things. We struggle with God. We ask in in our heart for our heart's desires, but we know that and we know that He can do all things. But but we're also longing for for His glory and and for our own good, even if we don't understand what good is for us in that moment, and for the good of others. And so we 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 wrestle in that moment and say, "Not my will, but Yours be done." That's not a cop-out when we pray that. I think sometimes we look at saying, not my will, but yours be done, that that's sort of like, well, if I don't get what I want, then it'll be okay, because that's just God's will. I think we boldly ask for what we desire, but we trust that what we desire more than anything else is the glory of God and our own growth, and He knows what's best, and also for the good of others. But that's not easy. (laughs) I mean, Jesus is wrestling in the garden here, isn't He? And so the fourth thing I want to say, the last thing, is that we persist until we can rest. We persist until we can rest. And when I say rest, I mean rest in in God's will. We persist. We keep praying. Jesus prays this prayer. He goes back to the, the three and finds them sleeping, wakes them up, says, watch and pray. Goes and prays a second time. Comes back, finds them sleeping, goes and prays a third time. Jesus is there for a long period of time as far as I can tell. He falls down in the garden every time and he prays to the Father three times and then he returns and he's resolved, as it were, to walk down the path that the Father has placed him on. I read that and I was reminded of Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. This is what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 12, 7-10, a similar experience. He says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, speaking about things that he saw, A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times, he says, I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest rest upon me for the sake of of Christ, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. When I am weak, then I am strong. Paul, too, like Jesus, asks for something to be removed from him. Take this thorn away from you, this messenger of Satan that harasses him. But God says he wants to keep it. Why? To keep Paul from being conceited, from being prideful. And Paul wants it taken away. So much so that he comes to God continually, three times it says, asking that this would disappear, until the Lord finally says, I'm not going to take it away, but I will give you grace to endure it, rather than remove it from you. I don't think three is the magic number. I don't think that that that's what you walk away with here, that if I can just pray to the Lord three times about something, then I'll be at peace. But I think what it shows us is that we need to persist when we are wrestling with God about His will. That we persist, in a sense, until our will coincides with the Father's. We we pray until by the power of the Spirit we see this thing that we want removed. We say, no, I don't want it removed. Because this is what's going to glorify God most. It's be for the best for me and for others. And suddenly our our will and the Father's join together. I think that's a mysterious thing that happens, and it happens in prayer. And it doesn't always happen fast. 
it may take time of persisting and wrestling with them. And I think that's what Jesus shows us here, what Paul shows us as well. That persistence is not the vain repetition in prayer that Jesus warns against. There's a difference between vain repetition and, and just heartfelt reiteration. And, and here Jesus is making his desires known. The Father brings him to the place of not just resignation to his will, but also of joining their wills together so that he goes to the cross, as he says, for the joy that's set before him. I want to think a little bit more deeply about how God answers Jesus' prayer. Uh, and we're going to do that on Good Friday, because I think God does answer his prayer. How does he answer that prayer that he's praying? How does the Father answer it? Not just simply with no, but what does the Father do to help Jesus in that moment? And we'll look at that on Good Friday. But for now, let's just remember that in the darkness we, we need to persist. We wrestle with the Father until our desires conform to his. We can't expect things to always be simple and pain-free, but we can expect that as God's children, the Father lovingly will cause us to see that that his will is in fact our greatest desire. That if we are his children, the desire for his glory, for our good, for the good of others, that that's what we really want. And even if we ask for this one thing, and it's not the right thing in that moment, that he will help us to see what is best. Let me summarize kind of what we've said about the words that we use, and then we'll close. I'll just give you a six words that maybe will be helpful. As we've thought about how, what words do we use when we're at a loss for words. The first word I'll give you is audible. Audible. If you don't want to use audible, you can use out loud. Um, but we pray out loud. We come to the Father and we speak to Him out loud. And we talked about why we do that. The second word I'll give you is, is honest. We are honest in prayer because we know that God is a Father that He cares deeply for us. We are honest about what our hearts are feeling. Audible, honest. The third one is trusting. We know that God cares, but we also know that God is powerful. We trust His power. We trust His ability. We have faith that He can do all things. The fourth word, bold. We are bold in our requests for what we want. We come as children to the Father and tell Him our heart's desires. Fifth, the word I'll give you is submissive. We submit to the will of God above even our own desires. That, and not even just above our own desires, but we submit to Him because ultimately that is our deeper desire, is for the glory of God. And then the sixth word I'll give you is repeated. Repeated. That we persist in prayer. We continue to come to Him. What are the words to say when we have no words? They're audible. They're honest. Trusting, they're bold, they're submissive, and they're repeated. What a wonderful gift that we have in the scriptures. The garden to see Jesus suffering in this way, it's it's not a place that we want to readily enter into if we really understand what's happening there. It's a place where we may feel like we don't belong. We need to step away from that. And yet we see how to pray, but more than that we see what Jesus takes on on our behalf. So often we think about the sufferings of Jesus and we simply think about the physical things that he went through. And surely they were horrible and we will think about those on this Friday. But here we get a glimpse 
to what's going on in the heart of Christ, about what he is looking at, what he is taking on on our behalf. So whenever we pray in the midst of the darkness, surely we can give thanks to God. And we will give thanks to God as his children for all eternity for what he's done for us in Christ.